Amen. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, thank you, worship team. Good morning. Man, I'm excited to be with you here this morning, and I mean that. Uh, if you're visiting with us and I haven't had a chance to introduce myself to you, uh, my name is Jason. I have the honor of uh, serving as lead pastor here at the church, but I've been on vacation the last two Sundays, so this is my first Sunday back, and so I'm excited to be back with you. Thank you for giving uh, myself and my family some time off. Um, it was an amazing experience. Some of you have already asked. I would even say life transformational, but we'll get to that some other time. Uh, so thank you for giving us that time, but I'm excited to be back. Uh, we're going to continue the Redemption Stories sermon series. Um, and if you haven't been a part of that, here's what we're doing. We're spending some time in God's Word every Sunday, uh, looking and learning uh, about what it means to have a redemption story. And then we're getting a chance to hear from somebody, a testimony from somebody in our church who's lived it out. And so today you're going to get to hear from a very sweet lady, Marsha Larkin. Some of you already know her and know part of her story. Um, and, uh, and so excited for you to get to hear how what we're going to learn in 1 Peter chapter 1 plays out in a real life story. And so we're going to continue this sermon series for about another four weeks after today. And then we'll get ready to go through the book of Acts together. Um, but that's where we're going to be. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible or on your phone, tablet, or gadget. If you don't own a Bible or didn't bring one with you and you want to follow along, uh, we put black hardback Bibles um, under the seats around you. And so um, feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, um, that's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word to take home with you. Just write your name in it. That's yours from here on out. Um, we'll get started in 1 Peter chapter 1 in, in just a minute, beginning in verse 3. So as we continue the Redemption Story sermon series today, we're going to be talking about indescribable or unspeakable joy. And so in a lot of ways, if you were here last week for Nick Hill's sermon uh, from James chapter 1 about how our sufferings and our trials have purpose. They, God uses the trials of, of, of our experience in life to shape us and grow us and mature us. Today, in a lot of ways, is going to kind of be a part two to that. We're going to be talking about a, a joy that we have in Christ that can't be touched by the circumstances of our, of our day and our world and our life. Uh, the things going on around us. And so I'm excited to have this conversation with you this morning. Now, as we get ready to think about what we're going to be talking about today, I want to begin by saying this. Every person in this room, now this is a pretty bold statement because I don't know you all. Some of you I've met for the first time today, and some of you I haven't even met yet. But I'm going to go ahead and say this. Every person in this room is in pursuit. Every person in this room is in pursuit of happiness, what you believe happiness to be and where you believe happiness to be found. You're in pursuit of it. Now, it looks different in every person's life. For some of us, we believe that happiness is connected to achievement and it's to be found in climbing up the corporate ladder to become the boss, the supervisor, to attain a certain position and that once we get to that place, we'll finally be happy Happy with the sacrifices, happy with the effort given, and we will finally enjoy life. Others of you uh, believed that happiness would be found in having children. Boy, were we wrong. <laughs> Not that we don't love our children and enjoy them in small pockets of time throughout the day, but there's a lot of hardship that comes with these beautiful little monsters we call children. Some of you believe that you would be happy once you found that special someone. Teenagers, listen up. It's a lie. 
There's a, there's a lot of unhappiness to be found in marriage. Now, there's a lot of glory to be had. There's a lot of a fantastic life transformation to be had. But this illusion of happiness we pursue in a lot of different ways, and you're pursuing it right now. I would be willing to venture that you're here this morning in pursuit of happiness. But wait a second, I didn't come here to find happiness in God. I didn't say that, right? Because happiness oftentimes can be pursued away from something. You just didn't want your spouse to be mad at you. And so you came this morning. Or maybe you've been searching and searching and searching, and what you're trying out there hasn't been working, so you thought, you know what, I'll give church a try. Can't hurt. I'll see what they have to say. Maybe I'll find what I've been looking for there. See, we are submerged. And when I say submerged, I want that metaphor to really to come to mind, this idea. We are submerged in a culture, underwater, in a culture in pursuit of this illusion of happiness in all kinds of things found here on earth. And we try one thing and it doesn't work, and what do we do? We get on Facebook and we see somebody that looks like they're happy doing something else, and we go after that. And we get that and we realize, you know what, happiness isn't here. It didn't work for me. So we, what do we do? We go pursue it in what seems to be making our neighbor happy, our friend happy. And we're chasing after this illusion of happiness in fleeting things. Things that are here today and gone tomorrow. There are a lot of people in this room today. And, and here's the thing, like, it, it doesn't take rocket science to, to, to realize that our culture is an indebted culture. And there are many people here in this room who are in financial debt because you've been pursuing happiness in things. You thought that that new car was going to make you happy. So you sacrificed, you made the decision, you went out on a limb, you bought the car. Two weeks later, it smells like McDonald's Happy Meal, and right? It's no longer doing it for you. Some of you are enslaved and indebted to a mortgage because you thought if I get the right house in the right neighborhood on the right lot, right, we'll get the right backyard so we can have the right playground for the kids and the right community, and you got it, and what? It didn't deliver what it promised, did it? Yet the mortgage is still there, the commitment is still there, and in American culture, we see this cycle of chasing after, chasing after. We sacrifice time, energy, money, family to get the thing that we think will make us happy. We're going to look today at God's Word. And I want to let you know if you're visiting with us here at Solid Rock, we believe God's Word. We do. As best as we can understand it, we believe it. And we believe that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But we believe more than that, that it is without error. It is inerrant. It is the very word of God. So let's open to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3 together, and let's read these words. I'm going to start in verse 3. I'm going to go all the way through verse 9. Rick, if you're following up there, you want to follow on the screen. And we'll come back and talk about it. So here's the words. First Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefilable, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various 
trials so that the, test, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him or now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, if you're reading from the ESV or the NIV translations, you're going to notice that first sentence ends with a specific punctuation mark, the exclamation point. Now, that wasn't there in the original text. Greek language does not have punctuation, so we have to interpret it as such. But even without an explanation point there, you can feel the angst of Peter's little pep rally here calling us to joy. His first statement here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's excited about that. Now, here's the thing. Peter is writing to Christians, okay? This isn't an evangelistic message. He's calling to stir the hearts of those who already believe. Now, if you're in Christ, hopefully at some point there, there are moments in your journey where you've felt this way, this inexpressible joy, this sense of being happy but unex being unable to explain it. And so what Peter's doing, he's speaking to those of us who are in Christ who've been on this journey calling us, right, to remember something. He's calling us to this joy that we have now in Christ. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to walk us through the source and the basis of our joy. And we're going to see that it is going to be counterintuitive to this pursuit of happiness and joy here on earth that each one of us succumbs to, either fully or at least at some point during our busy lives. And so here's what he says. So we have this this joy, according to, first of all, in verse 3, his great mercy. Now, two things I want to point out about the mercy of God that make it great, especially in connection to our joy, okay? First of all, it's inexhaustible, okay? And that's, let that sink in for just a minute. What that means for you as an individual, that there's no series of decisions that you can make, no list of rebellions or sinful acts that you can commit that would ever get to the end of God's mercy where he would draw a line and say, done. I can't forgive you anymore. I don't have any more mercy. That's pretty big. That's huge. If I sit and I reflect on my life and how many times throughout every day I have to tap into God's mercy, his loving kindness, his patience for me, that I can't get to the end of that. Now, add to it all your messes, right? And now all of a sudden we get this, we begin to understand the greatness of his mercy, his inexhaustible mercy for us. God as a loving father saying to you, you'll never get to the point where I don't have any mercy left for you. It makes it great, doesn't it? See, I'm a parent. I've got a little mercy, but it's not inexhaustible, trust me. It didn't take very long for me to get to the end of it. And I'm done with mercy. Now it's time for retribution. Now it's time for somebody to be held accountable. But God is so merciful with us. The second reason why I would say that God's mercy is great is this, is that it's proactive. It comes after us even when we're not pursuing it. 
We're going to see that play out in the text. Now think about that. It's one thing to feel joy, to, to have gone to the to father of the universe and say, will you forgive me? And him saying, yes. But then when we realize he was actually pursuing us while we were pursuing other things. That's great mercy, isn't it? Look at what he says. According to his great mercy, what? According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. So, so my salvation, my identity as a Christ father was initiated in God, not in me. He caused me to be born again. Now, this, this idea of being born again comes from Jesus. In, in John chapter 3, he captures a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And, and Nicodemus is, is asking, how do, I, how do I get to this place of ultimate happiness and joy where I know that I'm in the kingdom? And, and Jesus says, you need to be born again. It baffles Nicodemus. He says, how can you be born again? Like, I've already been born once. Do I reenter my mother's womb? And he didn't get it. And Jesus says, well, no, that was your water birth. You have to be born both of water naturally and also spiritually born again. To put to death the old you and to be awakened to a new life in Christ. Born again. And what Peter is saying is that because of God's great mercy, this proactive mercy that pursues us when we're pursuing other things, he's caused us. Now think about that. That's, that's mind-blowing. I tend to think about God as this supernatural vending machine. I go to him when I want something. And what Peter has said is that's not how it works in God's economy. He came after you. When you heard the gospel, your, your eyes were open to truth. God was pursuing you, calling you, beckoning you, inviting you. And think about that. If you think back through your journey, you can tell, right? Through circumstances, through events, through things that were happening, God was pursuing you. Because of this great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. And born again to a living hope. I'm going to slow down here for a minute and talk about living hope. See, I think we, uh, as just people here on earth, we're very familiar with temporary hope or hope that's really kind of dead, right? We get frustrated, we get down in a situation and we, we cheer ourselves up for the moment. We try to become optimistic just to get through this thing. And, and it's such, right, that's such a fleeting kind of hope, isn't it? But what we're talking about here is actually something quite different from me mustering up my own ability to be optimistic and to, to pull myself up by my bootstraps and, and to be hopeful. What we're reading about here is a living hope that Peter's going to go on to describe with three words. Listen to how he describes this living hope that we have. So first of all, he says we've been born again to a living hope, a hope that's alive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We'll come back to that. He says, here's the living hope. We're, we're, we're born again to this inheritance that is imperishable, undefilable, and unfading. I have to think for a minute. What does that mean? Because I'm very familiar with perishable. Things that are, right, here today and gone tomorrow. Ambitions that I, I pursued and then all of a sudden I don't care about anymore. How many of you went to college and changed your major? Familiar with perishable, right? Hopes and dreams and ambitions that we get excited about in the moment and then we wake up the next day and like, yeah, I've changed my mind. How about important relationships? 
something very true about our culture today. Relationships just seem to be disposable. As long as they serve me and they make me happy, I'm getting something out of them, I'm in. I'm willing to invest some time. But, right, imperishable is an abstract thing for us, especially in our culture. We're very momentary, we're very disposable in the way we think about life. And Peter's saying, listen, the hope you have in Christ is actually imperishable. It doesn't have an expiration date on it. It doesn't go bad. But not only that, he says what? It's undefilable. Well, let's think for a minute. We're very familiar with defiling things, aren't we? I just wonder within the last 48 hours, how many of you have defiled a very important relationship? Maybe by your words. Somebody that you committed to love dearly, yet with your harsh tone, your angry words, your critical spirit, right? We're very familiar with defiling things, messing things up, making things unclean. But this hope we have in Christ is undefilable. I can't mess it up. I can't make enough mistakes to make it dirty. It's imperishable and it's undefilable. And then he goes on to say, and it's unfading. Right? Unfading, not like the things here on earth that we find joy and happiness in that, that, that build us up in one moment and then begin to what? Fade away. Imperishable, undefilable, and unfading. This is our inheritance that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, now Peter could have pointed to, a, to, to many things here to talk about what Jesus has done to secure this for us. And he points to the resurrection primarily. Okay? I think why that's important is because in just a minute, he's going to start talking about suffering and trials. Right? And so he, what he's going to do is going to point to an aspect of the gospel. Jesus has died on the cross. He's been buried and he's resurrected. He's going to point to this resurrection, this victory over life and death and suffering to say, this is what anchors our hope. Now, why is that important? Because I tend to operate with a sense of hope that can be snuffed out by the slightest change in circumstances. Right? My, my dinner doesn't come out of the kitchen right, and all of a sudden I'm angry and frustrated, right? This person says something on Facebook, and I, I, I take it the wrong way, and all of a sudden my whole world's in a tiff, and the smallest little things can derail me, right, from my sense of, of hope. And so he points to something, right, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, where the Savior we believe in has overcome what? Suffering, abandonment, persecution, public humiliation, right? There's nothing in my life that can trump what Jesus has experienced, and he has overcome death itself to give us this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then look at where he goes next. Kept in heaven for you. That's so important, Christ follower. You are not the keeper of your own hope. You're not. Your eternal life is not contingent on you. God keeps it for you. In heaven. I was trying to think of a, of a comparable illustration. You know, parents, it's like, it's like setting aside a college fund or an inheritance for your children. You sign it over, you put their name on it, this is for them, and they get it on this certain day. It's theirs, yet it's being kept. 
Why? Because you know you can't trust them with it. They can go blow it on things that are here today and gone tomorrow. So what? You keep it. It's theirs, but you keep it. You protect it. That's the same way that Peter's describing our hope that we have in Christ. It's not up to you to keep it. God keeps it as your loving father for you. And then he goes on to say this. It's kept in heaven for you who, who's the who? Yeah, if you're a Christian, you're the who here. Who, who are by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you know that God of the universe is guarding your soul right now? This is actually a military term. It's most often used in this language to describe when a city is besieged and somebody stands on guard. Nobody gets in, nobody gets out. That's the word here. And what Peter is saying is that if you're in Christ, your soul has now been guarded by God's power. He's besieged you. He's taken ownership of you, and he stands guard over your soul. What happens to you on Monday morning cannot change your eternity. It can't. No amount of circumstances going the wrong way, even trials, even suffering can change who you are. Your soul is being guarded. And then he ends by saying this, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the when. Last time. So all of a sudden, what I'm being told here by God through Peter's words is that my living hope is not attached to what happens in this moment. It's about what happens in eternity. Okay? Now, this is a different equation or a different balancing of the scales than what we are used to in the world around us. So the world around us places a great deal of value on how you feel in any given moment. And we pursue lifestyles and we manage our resources and time to capture small moments of happiness, feeling good for the moment, right? And so most of our focus, if not all of it, is on what? Temporary fleeting things. He's going to talk about gold here in just a minute and say, actually, what we have is worth more than gold. Because in the end, gold's going to perish too. So whether you're pursuing happiness in a relationship or a career path, an achievement or accolade, a diploma, a possession, your earthly passions or dreams. If you are focused on what's here on earth, guess what you're going to reap in the end? Disappointment, unhappiness, hopelessness. Talk to the man or woman who has made it to the top of their career path, their pursuit of professional sports, all these things, right? It's a delusion that seemed to, would make us happy if I could just be, if I could just accomplish. Talk to the person who's accomplished what you're chasing after. Guess what they're going to tell you? Unless it's Christ, they're going to tell you, it let me down. It lied to me. I gave my life to this thing. And in the end, it let me down. Because why? You're focusing on dirt, you're focusing on things that are bound by gravity to a ball of dirt, and they'll never produce any long-lasting hope in your life. So we pursue fleeting things, and what Peter is doing, he's saying, listen, let's flip the scales here. 
rather than focusing 99% of our energy and time on things that are fleeting, and then maybe in our peripheral we think about eternity every once in a while, let's focus on eternity and let that drive how we live out our daily lives. Let's see eternity as the main thing and let that judge how I feel at any given moment here on earth. He says that this living hope that is undefilable, it's imperishable, it's unfading, it's leading us to an eternal salvation. Now what he's going to do in in application in verse 6, he's going to start by reminding us that there's a sense of rejoicing to what he's talking about. He says, in this you what? Rejoice. That's That's a powerful word, right? Doesn't mean I feel good for the moment. There's something coming out of me. The joy is oozing out in this. What's this? Well, here's what this is. I've heard the gospel, and out of God's great mercy, he's caused me to be born again. He's awakened me to this living hope I have that can't be snuffed out by anything here on earth. And in the end, it's, it's, it's promising me eternity. In this, we rejoice. So every person in this room, if you are a Christian, has more than enough reason to stand up and rejoice right now. I'm not going to ask you to, at least not yet. But when we walk into uh, this building on Sunday mornings, there's nothing spiritual about this building, but we're gathering with the people of God who have this same hope. And so from the moment we start to sing, rejoicing should just be inerrant and natural, shouldn't it? If we're standing on this hope. But if we've been counting on our spouse to make us happy, or our kids to make us happy, or our boss to make us happy, we're going to come in here pretty bummed out on Sunday mornings, aren't we? We're going to come in here pretty let down. And such is, the, I think, the atmosphere that Peter's riding into. These people are discouraged. And he's reminding them, listen, you've already got enough to rejoice. You don't need to add anything else. In this, this which we already have, you rejoice. Though now for a little while. You feel the difference in... He's talking about our hope, and it's eternal, it's imperishable, it's unfading. But he's going to talk about the moments we experience here on earth as a little while. Though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, Peter is saying a very similar thing to what he said through James chapter 1, which you heard last week through Nick's sermon. When he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Peter and James are talking about the same thing. And so now here Peter is saying, yes, in the small moments of your life, you may face hardships, various trials, sufferings. You may lose your job. You may be betrayed by people who you love. Those beautiful little children that you thought were going to make you happy. You know what? They may rebel. They may walk away from you, right? Some of you know that. These things that you're trying to place hope in will let you down. And he says, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in something. So here's what he's saying. If you walk by faith, you're going to encounter various trials and sufferings. Those various trials and sufferings are going to be a refining process on your life. If you know how refinement works, things are heated up. Things are made uncomfortable. What comes to the top are the the impurities and the dross, whether you're purifying gold or silver, whatever it is. 
And so what Peter's going to say is that the trials in your life are like a purifying, refining process, bringing dross to the surface. You know what the dross is? It's all the fleeting things that we try to find joy in. It's anything other than Christ that you're hanging on to for hope. It'll come to the top through refinement of facing trials, and it will be burned away. He compares, compares it to gold, and he says this, that here's what's going to happen in the midst of trials, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if we're tracking with him, he's saying that through our momentary various trials, that if you're in Christ, you've got more than enough to respond to these trials with what? Worship. Did you catch that? That sounds as strange as James saying in chapter one of James, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. What are you talking about, James? I want to get mad and frustrated when I face trials. I want to feel entitled. I want to put my fists in the air. You're telling me to be happy when things go wrong? I mean, this sounds like Job. Come on. Surely he was the exception to the rule, right? Everything's taken away. Everything falls apart. His family's stripped away. His, his health is taken away. And he responds in worship. That's Job, though. That's not me. We have the same hope. We do. We have the same joy. And Peter says, here's the thing. This joy you have is untouchable by the things here on earth, that even in the midst of refining suffering, you can respond in worship. You may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. So we're not placing our hope or our joy on things that we can see. Right? We're trusting in something that we can't fully see. Though we have not seen him, we love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. That inexpressible means you can't find the words to describe it. It's undescribable. It's unspeakable, the joy we have in Christ. Inexpressible joy and filled with glory. Now let me ask you a question. Because I think this is the, a good way to think about your life and the measure of what you're pursuing happiness in. Is it filled with glory? How many things on your weekly calendar are filled with glory? You see, there's a difference between this cheap version of what we call happiness and what the Bible calls joy. Because true joy from God is filled with glory. Now, if I think about it like that, right, there are a lot of cheap substitutes in my life that I pursue to find happiness. But Peter's saying this, you'll know it when you're experiencing true joy because it will be filled with glory. How many things in your daily calendar and routine are filled with glory? How about just your personal time with the Lord every day, if that's even a part of your daily routine, is filled with glory. How many of us have to schedule our time with God and we only give him so many minutes and the whole time we're reading or meditating or praying in our peripheral, we're thinking about the next thing we have to do. And so therefore we're not actually experiencing the fullness of that moment. Moments of our life filled with glory. Those of you who are married, how many of your conversations in the last 24 hours with your significant other have been filled with glory? Ah, ouch. 
rather than maintenance on what we got to do, the schedule, the busyness, let alone the hard conversations, the criticisms, right? Filled with glory. An inexpressible joy filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, what I want to do is um, I want to give you an opportunity to hear from um, somebody who has become a dear friend of mine, a sister in the faith, um, Marsha Larkin. I want you to hear her story as she tries to describe what Peter just laid out for us. As she puts into words a description of what it's like to encounter this mercy of God that ignites the soul and causes you to be born again into this living hope and inexpressible joy. If you'd give your mind and attention to the screen for just a moment, let's hear from Marcia. And it just amazes me. And to this day, you know, all those people, like I said, just doesn't bother me. I actually almost feel sorry for them because they're not experiencing what I have. Well, I was born into a Jewish family, lived in Boston. My parents, they had an arranged marriage, right? But my mother was a type of person who was very materialistic. She, she wasn't happy unless she had something new all the time. We were there and we started getting rocks thrown at the window, cracking it. Scared the tar out of me. I had no idea what was going on. And they were yelling out dirty Jews. So that's when I realized, oh, you know, it's our religion. At one point, um, my father, he just had, had finally had enough. And so in the movie theater, he whispers to me, he says, I'm leaving your mother. He says, I'm sorry, honey. He says, you just can't come with me. He says, your mother needs you. He says, I don't. Your mother needs you. Well, I just, to hear those things is really, really difficult, especially so young and, and you don't understand it. When he left, um, uh, I stayed with my mother and my father left. My mother was horrible to me. Every second, I couldn't do anything right. I was 16 and she said, um, she's moving down here with her friend because for nursing school, so it should be closer to um, the county hospital because that's where she was taking her training. So she moved out and at the age of 17, I lived by myself, but I was so scared of living alone too. So unfortunately, this first person that I met, which was a mistake on my part, I got met, we got married and um, he was so abusive to the point that he would come home or whatever and yell and scream and start hitting me. Hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me. I don't know how many times I got socked and hit. But, and I said, that's it. I've had enough. I can't take this. But it came time where um, we were getting the divorce, 
and um, the judge said, we have to split them up. Your husband is going to take the two older boys, and you will take the two younger children. And that was a, one of the hardest things in my life that I had to do was giving up two boys. I tried finding him. He, 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 he turned my boys against me so that they didn't even want to see me anymore. It was my fault that we got a divorce. Years later, I met my husband today, James. Love him with all my heart and soul. In between us, I have a son, Jeff, who, my son, Jeff, God bless his heart. He used to call me once a week, maybe, and preach to me, preach the gospel to me. Oh, I did not want to hear at all. For 23 years, faithfully, he would, Mom, you got to do this. Mom, you've got to do this. When Jeff had called me for his very last time, but this time, when he said that he wanted to talk to me, his voice was so down on the phone. And I thought to myself, how can I do this to my own child? How could I not listen to what he's telling me? He, he's just, he just wants the best for me. That's all he's doing. He's like, maybe he's right. Maybe, maybe I will go to hell. How do I know? And that's when I, I thought, you know, maybe I should at least try to go to church just once, see what it's like. Maybe know what the Bible is about, if nothing else. And I know that, that one day um, in class, listening to each person in that class talking and looking at them and, and them accepting me, who they don't know, to watch their faces. And I did that as they're talking. They each look so happy. And they all are the same thing. It's because they have Jesus in their life. They can be so happy. I want to be happy too. I'm missing all this. I want to know. I want to know the Lord like these people do. And I remember telling Dennis, I want this, but I don't know how. I said, can you just teach me or tell me, what do I say? How do I pray? Do I have to know something in the Bible? Do I have to learn something first? I don't know. Can you help me? And I remember him saying, you just speak from your heart. God knows, God's listening to everything you say. That all I had to do was ask God for forgiveness. All I did, that's it. And just like that, after, when I left that day from church, I was just like, I felt like I was walking on air. I, I, there's no explanation for it. I mean, I was smiling and nobody was around that day. I thought, oh my gosh, my worries are gone. Literally gone. I can't believe this. I remember I, I just wanted to shout it to the world. I was just so excited. And I called 
Everybody that I could think of that I was friends with, I literally called them. I had to tell them I was just, it's like, it's like I got something brand new that's better than a, better than a gold car, better than money, better than that, bigger than that. But it was just amazing. I, my life from that day forward just has changed. It's heaven, it's eternal life is what's important. If my mother was here today, she might not like what I'm doing, but I could look at her with a smile on myself and say, I'm sorry what you did to me. I truly am sorry what you did to me, but you know what? That's okay. I forgive you because God has forgiven me for what I have done. So the least I can do is forgive you. There's just so much. I just really can't begin to describe what God has done for me. He has truly, truly changed it. My name is Marsha Larkin, and this is my redemption story. Amen. Amen. What an amazing story of redemption. And uh, if you ever have the honor and privilege to sit down with Marcia and listen to more of her story, I encourage you to do that. I've had that opportunity. And, uh, and so I want to end here. Um, I don't know everybody who's here today, and I don't know where you're at in your walk with the Lord. But this amazing, indescribable, undefilable, unfading joy that Marcia is talking about is available to every person in this room right now by simply trusting in Jesus in who he says he is and what he says he's done for you. Jesus is the son of the living God. He came to earth and he lived perfectly because we are incapable of that. He performed on our behalf and earned the favor of God. And God now says, here, you can have it. And he went to the cross and bore the penalty for our sins. And he took our sins to the grave and resurrected from the grave, displaying his victorious power over sin and death. He has done for you what you can't do for yourself. And here today, by trusting in him and him alone, it's available to you. This living hope and inexpressible joy. And so I want to pray for us now uh, before we stand to sing, if you would pray with me. And I want to first pray for anybody here who does not know Jesus personally. Um, if that's you, uh, my prayer is going to be that God would open your eyes today and that you would truly sense his presence and that even if you don't have it all figured out, just like Marcia, that you would courageously take that step of faith and trust in him. If that's you, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but if you're not sure what to pray, it could go something like this. God, today I believe. I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he has died on the cross for my sins. I believe that in him I can have forgiveness of my sins and an eternal life with you. If that's you and you've prayed that prayer in faith, I want you to know right now you are a child of God. He has besieged you in a good way. He's welcomed you into his family. He's called you his own. 
And so if you've made that decision, I'm gonna encourage you to be courageous enough to share it with somebody who you think would care. Maybe somebody you came with or one of our prayer partners. For those of us who are Christians here today, when we walked in this room, I pray that just like the church that Peter was writing to, our hearts could be reminded and awakened to this living hope. Maybe you came in today out of balance with your focus on things of this world and you walked in today defeated, let down, disappointed, frustrated. And now through God's word, you've realized, you've realized what was going on. And so today my prayer is for us that we would shift our focus off of the things of this world that we would shift our pursuit from things that we, th we think will make us happy and we would place our pursuit on Christ and Christ alone. God, would you send your spirit now to move in this room and move in our hearts. Call us and beckon us, invite us, encourage us and challenge us, God, as you see fit. our prayer partners are going to be available at the back of the room. If you'd like somebody to talk with or somebody to pray with, they'll have a lanyard on that says prayer partner, and they'd be honored to talk and pray with you. If you want to stay seated while we sing, you're free to do that. If you want to stand and rejoice with the brothers and sisters, we invite you to do that as well.